TikTok supports the Department of Health and Human Services COVID-19 education campaign. We can do this efforts to increase education and awareness about COVID-19 vaccines. Whether due to language barriers or lack of access to healthcare, many Asian Americans, Native Hawaiians, and Pacific Islanders face unique challenges to getting accurate vaccine information. We hope that amplifying these resources, especially in other languages, will help reach and protect our most vulnerable communities. Please visit vaccines.gov for more information. Four BFFs who grew from friends to fierce boss moms. Join us as we shoot from the tip as Asian American Pacific Islander women. Discovering modern hacks for both surviving and thriving in this ever-changing mama world. Not quite TED Talks, but Tit Talks with your favorite girlfriends. Welcome to a special edition of our podcast and a collaboration of insight, history, frustration, and hope featuring TED Talks and Raising Compassionate Leaders, RCL. We have come together today in light of some horrific anti-Asian hate crimes to address why this could be happening and what we can do about it, along with some subject experts from the RCL board. This is such a dense topic that there is no way we can touch upon much of it, but this is the start of an ongoing discussion. We are so grateful for your leadership and partnership, and on behalf of the Tiffany's and Issa, we wanted to welcome Chris and Justine to the conversation. So could you please actually introduce yourselves and give us a little bit of insight as to um, why you're here with us today. Hi, everyone. Thank you for that. So my name is Justine. I've been working with Raising Compassionate Leaders since its inception. And, you know, working with RCL has been such a wonderful experience and has allowed me to process both my own experiences and the experiences of other minorities. Um, and being a part of such a diverse organization with two amazing Black women as co-founders um, has also helped me as a minority advocate for myself and for other minorities. And um, yeah, it's just really powerful to be part of such a diverse community. Um, I'm also a PhD student at UCI, and my research interests are in the exploration and implementation of digital mental health tools for Asian communities. And I think that both my work at RCL and as a doctoral student have really allowed me to think about how we can leverage our resources um, and be a part of the solution when it comes to AAPI discrimination. Perfect. Thank you so much, Justine. So, Chris, I'm going to hand it off to you. Of course. Okay. My name is Chris E. I'm a clinical psychologist in private practice in Pasadena, California. Uh, I'm also trained as a psychoanalyst, so that's my theoretical orientation. And um, I am a 1.5 generation Korean American, which means that I was born and raised in Korea and came here as a teenager. So, you know, uh, I'm bilingual and bi bicultural. My practice in Pasadena is uh, majority Asian American uh, female uh, patients. So, you know, uh, in response to the uh, Atlantic shooting, 
um, I had a explosive reaction from my Asian American female patients. So I thought that this would be a good forum for uh, me to share some of their experiences. Fantastic. And we're so glad that we have your expertise here with us today. Um, so I will kick us off with the first question, really. Um, and Chris, you really, uh, what you experienced, that explosive outburst after the Atlanta shootings, is exactly what kind of compelled us to really get together today um, to really talk through um, why this is happening and kind of how we can handle this as uh, the AAPI community and also uh, bring other communities to help support the cause too. So after the Atlanta shootings and given factors like your age, generation, your own experiences, what is your perspective on tackling these issues surrounding the AAPI violence? And what do you feel has been the sentiment with the Asian community? Well, for me personally, I am from Gen Z and Gen Z is pretty well known for its digital literacy and ability to navigate the internet, navigating social media. And I have seen lately that we've been using the internet for information and social media as a way to kind of transfer information to each other, to educate and to also find resources for our own selves and our own mental health. And with that, there's also a lot of distressing media coverage that has been prevalent throughout social media and throughout the internet in general. Um, so I think that for my generation, um, we're also kind of traumatized in a way by the amount of violence that we constantly see. And, you know, let's be honest, as Gen Z, it's super difficult to get off of social media. But every time we log on to social media, you know, there's something else that's happening. And I think that that affects my perspective in terms of tackling these issues. And I think that, you know, looking at social media and looking at the internet and how we can leverage those resources for good are something that I'm still working on. And I think Gen Z is working on as a whole. So yeah, I definitely think that my generation has an interesting perspective when it comes to um, AAPI violence and connecting with older generations. And I think that the sentiment within the Gen Z Asian community is a lot of pushing back on the model minority myth and you know, learning and educating through social media. So that is an awesome perspective from Gen Z. So Tilo and Issa, I wanted to throw it over to you. I don't think we're quite Gen Z, uh, but we are upper millennials, I would say. So what has your perspective been? Because we've, we've talked about this a lot on our own group chats. Um, and you, both of your insights have been just really incredible as to, as to how you're feeling about this. Tilo, I'll let you go first. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, I think it's the same. Obviously, we're millennials and we are plugged in. So I, myself, from a personal perspective, have had a difficult time managing it because to your point, Justine, it is traumatic. Like every time I look at my phone and I look at Instagram, it's difficult because I think we're more interconnected to that sub-Asian culture than the general, what do you call it? The mainstream news is actually showing us. So if you're looking at Next Shark, you're looking at Very Asian Co., you're looking at um, Jackfruit, any of those Instagram accounts are solely giving us Asian hate content, which is very difficult because I feel like we're being confronted by it every day. And I think I personally am just trying to manage my own self-care in terms of like being able to just shut it off or, you know, just scroll past it because I know that I cannot take, you know, one more input of that type of information right now. Maybe I can later, but it's more so of like, you know, how do I manage my own feelings and being connected to how I'm feeling so that I can be able to manage what I can handle on a daily basis. 
Right. And to piggyback off of, of that, I think being millennials, we're kind of caught in the in-between between, you know, our the older generation, us, and then Gen Z. So we grew up um, kind of with that model minority myth uh, in our heads or to be to pursue a four-year degree and not necessarily be more creative or do other things and, and playing into that model minority myth as well. So I think we have kind of like both sides where we, I, I'll speak for myself in college, I wasn't really exploring, um, you know, what it meant to be a minority, what it meant to be, um, I'm, I'm Pacific Islander, what it meant to be Chamorro and Japanese. Um, as well. And really, um, I don't know if you knew, know this, but we rushed a historically white sorority. So, you know, kind of unpacking those things now is also part of the millennial experience, I feel like, where I feel like Gen Z really knows who they are, um, really tied to, you know, their culture and being proud of it, where I was raised to, you know, primarily speak English and public spaces and, and things like that. So I think, you know, Gen Z has a little more leverage and being themselves and we were taught to fit this mold, you know, in, in the millennial space that we are in. I know, I know my younger brother's a millennial too, but he kind of relates more to Gen Z. So I think that's a little of the dynamics that we're also experiencing or I'm, I experience as a millennial. You know, I think that the model minority myth is something that all of us, every generation of Asian American um, has been struggling with. And um, I think one of the psychological effects of the model minority myth is that it has, I think, erased our racialized experience as Asian Americans. So we have become quasi white or white adjacent. So I think the effect of that is that we are blind to, again, our racialized experience. We cannot always recognize, you know, because we were similar to whites. We, you know, fit nicely into white spaces. When we have, when we are sub subjected to, let's say, microaggression or race racism, it is harder for us to recognize because of that model minority myth and identity. We've internalized that. We see ourselves similar to whites. We don't see color, right? So I think it, it, you know, it has had negative impact on us that way. Yeah, and I think sort of also coming to terms with how entrenched that is in our everyday lives has really been a light bulb moment for me myself. It, to your point, there is a proximity, you know, to that whiteness that we benefit from. However, I think in this last year, I think it's highlighted just how much this white supremacist culture actually doesn't benefit anybody <laughs> except white people. All people of color are really struggling under this structure that we have in America. And, you know, I think about the Black Americans in this country that have been subject to this for longer than we have. And it's disheartening, I think, for me, because I'm like, wow, you know, we're, you know, hundreds of years into this struggle. And, you know, in our lifetime, how much change is really going to happen? And that's really something that I've been struggling with personally. And I know there's been progress. There definitely has. But I mean, every day, I just feel like still people are fighting for basic human rights. And it's a really hard pill for me to swallow. And that's been something I've been struggling with for the past few months. 
I think this has been a moment of reckoning for Asian Americans because the model minority contract has been exposed as a sham and all the pernicious, insidious stereotypes about Asians and Asian Americans, I think coming to the foreground. And, you know, we're right back to being yellow apparel, teeming horde of diseased people posing existential threats to white America, right? And I, I think scale has come off of a lot of people's eyes. What I see in terms of speaking about the generational difference, the group of uh, Asian Americans that has probably hardest time seeing racism in American society for what it is, is the immigrant generation. Because, you know, they, they, have, they have to carry the illusion of equality and justice an opportunity for success in America, right? That American dream has to live on for them. I mean, otherwise, why are they here? And to really see racism in America for what it is, I mean, so it's an assault to their sense of reality, right? I think for that generation, it's a little harder to see and come to terms with that. I think the younger generation is able to see that more clearly. Right. And the generational gap and the conflict that comes out of that, I think, is I'm sure something that a lot of, you know, younger generation is dealing with at the moment. It's hard because, you know, the older generation, the immigrant population parents are going to say, you know, just study. They're going to be their tiger parent selves and push that. Put your head down and study do your thing, work hard, you know, that that narrative has a limitation. And do you think that generation of people actually identify themselves as American? Or do they just see themselves as immigrants? You know, whereas like, we've been born here, we have that natural right as citizens, but the people that actually came here and immigrated here, do you think they see themselves as other? Most definitely, I think that for immigration, uh, immigrant uh, generation, they see themselves as Asians, not Asian Americans. And that was the case for me for a very long time as well, as an immigrant to this this country. And I have experienced an interesting evolution in my own racial identity. To give you a very compelling example, when the uh, psychological literature on microaggression came out by uh, Daryl Sue, who's a a Asian American uh, psychologist, and, uh, you know, that phrase, where are you from, being a um, example, the example of microaggression, you know, it, it was hard for me to appreciate that because as a Asian, not Asian American, not having born in this country, that question was not offensive to me. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I do want to touch upon that generation uh, gap and kind of like the differences and how we handle it just for a second. For our family members that may have a generation gap, how can we unpack the emotional trauma around being a member of the AAPI community in the U.S.? And how can we even begin a conversation around AAPI stigma and discrimination with our family? I think this is a really interesting question that I would like to tackle as an Asian American daughter. And I think that with my family members and what I see from my friends that are also Asian American is that this conversation is difficult to even begin with our family members. It can be really difficult um, to kind of come over that generation gap and to even discuss these really distressing topics. I think that um, for me personally, 
I have used media and have used um, things like movies to even begin a conversation with my family because, and I'm not sure if this is true for all of you, but in a lot of people that are in Asian cultures, um, there's a very clear boundary of respect when it comes to talking to your family members, specifically your older family members, and you know filial piety and this idea of respect towards your elders. So when you talk about you know differences of opinion or you're trying to teach them something, it becomes increasingly difficult because it's something that they don't really want to face because it is really distressing. And it's also a, an issue of respect, right? Whenever you talk, whenever I talk to my parents, at least, about um, my opinions, you know, you're always kind of taught to keep your head down. And when you're talking to older family members to not argue. And so beginning that conversation has been really difficult for me and for other people that I know as well in the AAPI community. And so I think that um, for me personally, um, I've been using media to begin this conversation. So I'll say like, hey, do you want to watch this movie or this documentary? And then from that documentary, you know, it provides a non-confrontational way to present information to my family members. So yeah, that's what I have been doing lately. You know, it's a, such a tough subject as I, I have several patients who, of course, were, you know, struggling with their experiences of racism, you know, sexual objectification. That, that has come up so much in response to the uh, Atlanta shooting. You know, so many of my patients sharing their experiences around being objectified and sexualized at the hands of white men. And, you know, it's, it was interesting phenomenon for me, even for me as someone that's tuned into Asian American experience, to have so many of those experiences come up. In fact, for some people for the first time in therapy was quite eye-opening for me. So for many um, to bring up those experiences with family members, especially parents, is extremely difficult thing to do. Of course, some try, um, but I would say that conversations are not always easy. And I think the thing to do is to, um, to, to know that these are difficult conversations to have in Asian American family, especially with your elders, and take care to not to put the blame on yourself and turn to others um, that you could, you know, talk to and process your feelings for support. Definitely. And I do think as well that um, it's important to also acknowledge how older or, you know, your parents and your family members, how they might process the anti-Asian hate um, in ways that may be potentially unhealthy and being able to identify that. So, you know, you see some people that transform this anti-AAPI racism into other forms of racism, or even, you know, deflecting and saying that that will never happen to me. And I think that, let's say, I think that we talked about this before, Chris, where some of your patients um, didn't see themselves as well in the Atlanta shootings and would deflect the conversation. And so I think that, you know, being able to identify these unhealthy coping mechanisms and being able to kind of process and talk about that is also really important. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Basically, you know, I, I had a bifurcation in people's response to the Atlantic shooting. Some of the patients 
felt deep identification with the shooting victims, although they were different in their uh, educational assim assimilation, career, you know, status. They felt identified because they themselves have gone through experiences be of being objectified and so on. While others drew very strong boundary between themselves and the shooting victims, and almost putting the blame on the victims saying, you know, they were, you know, they, they put themselves in vulnerable position, right? So I think that kind of defense is a, a way to protect yourself and give yourself an illusion of safety and personal control, right? But of course, you know, what makes you vulnerable to racist attacks is your skin color and gender, you know, that you, you, you have no personal control over. That's one thing. And I think also the putting the blame uh, on the victim, you know, that um, prevents you from seeing systemic racism. That's really the cause of the problem. Tilo, I think you had a comment earlier. Yeah, I was just going to piggyback off what Justine said. And I think that the education and utilizing that as a platform to start the conversation has been so helpful. I think right after the Atlanta shootings happened, PBS made the Asian American history series available for free streaming. And it's like a five series documentary about the history of Asian Americans. And if I, I would recommend that to anybody listening, know your history and know where you came from, because that helps inform everything that is happening now and the history of our oppression in the United States. I have to say that that's helped me, I guess, kind of acknowledge the hate not accepted at all, but just understand more um, of where it's stemming from and the, the history behind it and how long, because, you know, I think with the older generation, you you talk about these things and they're like, well, this has been happening for generations and, and it's true. Um, and so for them, it may not necessarily be a new thing, even though there's a, you know, stark uptick in the occurrences of API hate. But I think it helps acknowledge also where they're coming from and what they've dealt with in the past, um, you know, with, with laws that restricted their business or them being here, you know, or immigration itself. And I come kind of come from a different background where I come from a colonized island, a territory of the United States where people still don't have some of the freedoms that they should have, like being able to vote for the government or having a congressman in the government that can't vote. So, you know, I come from a different place, but um, I think learning the history of that has really helped me in processing my feelings, I think. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think understanding our history and having a conversations with uh, each other, I think help us to feel, have a collective narrative. Hopefully that speaks to our experience, but that also emphasize hopefully our resilience as well. The narrative that we can all have a sense of belonging. And hopefully it, it, it's, it would be a narrative that just doesn't critique the mainstream culture, but something that we could also take apart and have a stake in, you know, towards a more diverse society, inclusive society. Let's talk about our children for a little bit. How 
how do we even start the conversation with our children about what's happening? And how do we protect the mental health of our children in, in such unsettling times? I think that, you know, providing warmth and acceptance and things like micro protections and affirmations are especially important. And knowing that your kids and your teens are going through a really tough time as well. I think also, you know, preparing them for biases that they might see and how to approach those can also be helpful. And in terms of your question regarding mental health, I think that it starts with really just destigmatizing that um, and, you know, validating their input and their feelings and, you know, letting them know that they're part of the solution, not the problem. And there are a lot of things that go into that. But I think that also, you know, just being open to your own experiences and connecting with your child and your teen um, on that level as a daughter for me would be incredibly helpful. I think that seeing vulnerability in your parents and, you know, advocating and organizing with each other and being um, or standing in solidarity with them is incredibly helpful. And, you know, there's this reciprocal value value as well to helping with nonprofit organizations or like working with other people in the AAPI community where as you help other people, it also helps yourself um, and helps you process your own feelings and connecting with other people part of the AAPI community can be incredibly helpful. And in addition, I do think that it's important for kids and teens to also have resources where they see Asian characters or Asian portrayals of strength um, rather than of victimization, which I think they've been seeing a lot lately. And that has affected their own self-confidence as well. So I think that, you know, being able to really see these strong people that are of Asian descent is helpful in their own confidence, is helpful for their mental health. And on RCL's website, we also have a large range of resources available, books and media, um, and there are plenty of other places where you can leverage your resources um, and really make that available to your kids. And so I think that as a daughter um, and as someone that is also doing research in digital mental health, um, this is something that is incredibly helpful, especially in the era of you know digital media and the internet. Well, yeah, I think that those are really excellent points, Justine, and I'd like to add parent perspective, and that is, you know, being a mom to two teens, you know, I could share some of my personal experiences as well. And um, I mean, it's very uh, stressful for us to experience and witness racial trauma. And I personally find it distressing to have to talk to my children uh, about them. I know I, I have to because it's important, right? But to do so um, isn't always easy. I, I do have to be in the right frame of mind and give, give uh, myself a chance to collect my own thoughts, uh, take a couple of deep breaths, you know? Um, so set the stage and collect my thoughts too. And, you know, then enter into a conversation. You know, because it's it isn't it isn't easy. Yeah. Just to highlight a couple of points you made, Justin. One is um, asking your child how they're feeling and thinking. What's what's their reaction about what happened? It is so important to validate their experience and feelings, and it could go such a long way. You know, it's like a magic, really. Parent validating a child's feelings. It's, it's you know, it's, it does enormous good. 
you know, one thing. And the other piece you mentioned about sharing parents' experience, I think that's also helpful. Obviously, you want to be age appropriate. You don't want to overwhelm your child with your own, you know, experience of trauma. Uh, so, you know, use your judgment. But what I have found is that when I share with them uh, what I have gone through, I, I, they, they listen to it with relish. And I think it's because, you know, they feel as if um, you understand their experience because you have gone through it and you have made it through, you know, from their perspective, a parent that they respect has gone through the same experience. I think it gives, it just normalizes their experience and gives them energy that they too can somehow work through it themselves. Yeah, and, and that sense of kind of coming together and shared experience, I think is really powerful. I completely agree with that because even as an adult, I gained so much by learning about my parents and my grandparents' experiences. Um, and so I can only imagine as a teenager, if that was shared with me more, how much more pride I would have and more protection over myself you know, that I would display because honestly, I have a two-year-old and um, recently we went out and I, I couldn't believe that these small microaggressions starts that early. You know, there was a woman who said, I want a little Asian baby. And, and that's, that just felt odd. I can't express, I guess, specific, like in a scientific way, what, what is wrong with that? But it just felt so off. And even her friend had to tell her, you can't say that. Um, but also, you know, other people following us around saying she's like so cute. I want to set her up with my grandson and, and they are not my race themselves. So it starts super early. Um, so I think, yeah, sharing our experiences, sharing my experience, I will definitely do that with my daughter because there's something like that was never taught to me and I'm sure my mom experienced um, and I just had to fend it off myself, either laughing nervously or, you know, th there's a lot of stigmas that going, go along with being an Asian woman, you know, being exoticized. I don't know if that's a word, but, um, and I didn't understand that it started so early. So I agree that learning and sharing will definitely be part of my parenting um, with my daughter as, you know, I move on. <laughs> she gets older. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I think that it's also, you know, understanding that, like you had said, kids learn these things from a very young age. And I think that parents are hesitant to have these conversations with their children because they assume that they don't understand. Um, and that's simply not the case. And as someone that was not a teenager too long ago, I think that it is definitely helpful for my parents to know that I am mature enough to understand these conversations and that I'm old enough to do so. And that, you know, I have had to learn what it means to be an Asian American ever since I could learn how to speak. So it definitely is also understanding that your child can handle these tough conversations with you and just approaching that head on. Yeah. And, you know, um, the point that you also touched upon is, you know, if um, it's really, it has to really uh, to do with a positive stereotyping. Asians are cute, they're exotic, they are this or that. They're positive stereotypes. It's hard to call it out because it is positive. You're supposed to graciously accept it, but it's problematic to the degree that it really doesn't speak to your, your who you are, right? You as a person, it puts you in a category instead of seeing you as a whole person. 
So I would say that that is the issue, these positive stereotypes. I agree. Yeah, it was hard to express that it felt uncomfortable to me without, because yeah, I did get some people to say, hey, she's cute, you know, or, but it felt odd. Yeah. So Justine, I know you have some resources for us and our listeners um, if they're interested in learning more and really taking action. Do you want to run through that list with us? Um, Sure. Well, first thing that I do want to say is that, um, you know, encouraging leadership and activism also starts with, you know, leading with example and encouraging children to advocate alongside you. Um, and lets them foster these leadership skills really early on and, you know, asking them questions like, well, how did this active, you know, activism make you feel and capitalizing when it makes them feel good and saying that, see, like, you know, if you work with this organization or if you, you know, do this good deed, um, it makes you feel good and makes you feel better about the situation. Um, and so one example that I like to give is writing a letter to Congress um, about something that you are distressed about, um, like AAPI violence. And even if your child can't write necessarily, they can be alongside you in that. They can help you drop it off at the mailbox. You know, they can help you put the stamp on it. There are tons of little things that they can do. And so I think that leading with example is also really important. The first resource I will talk about is rcleaders.com, which is the organization that I've been working with since its inception. Um, And I've been so proud to be able, as an Asian American woman, to um, provide a bunch of resources for parents and for teacher, for parents, educators, and also for organizations, for um, family members. Um, so there are a lot of different resources that are on there, including media, books, things like that. Um, we also host a ton of events and even book readings. We recently had a book reading of Luna's Yum Yum Dim Sum, which is excellent for um, Asian American children. So we definitely have a lot of resources there. And then I think that there are also a ton of resources that are available in terms of taking care of your own mental health. And if you see an act of discrimination or a violence, um, I'd highly recommend going to 8449nohate.org or calling 1-844-9-NO-HATE. And then there are also resources for mental health support, specifically care for coronavirus anxiety, which was implemented by this digital tool called the Shine app and then Asian Mental Health Collective. Um, And there are a couple of organizations that are also out there for DACA recipients. So yeah, definitely a lot is out there. And then there are also basic needs resources like Asian and Pacific Islander American Health Forum, which has uh, resources that are translated in different languages. Um, There's also labor alliances and coronavirus resource kits. Um, So there's definitely a lot that is out there. And I think that it's especially important to highlight these for those that might not be as digitally literate and may not be as inclined to go on the internet, especially for older generations. And I think that starting these conversations around um, AAPI violence, a lot of it can be understanding that, you know, your family members may not want to talk about it, but just giving them these resources so that they can approach this on their own terms. That was wonderful. Thank you so much, Justine. And just to reiterate, we are really just scratching the surface in terms of starting the conversation about AAPI hate and violence. And we hope to be part of this ongoing conversation on how to help navigate the very, very complex waters of this and and real, really all hate in general. So 
Thank you so much for being a part of this powerful conversation with us at TED Talks and RCL. We seek to understand and improve the lives of those like and unlike us. And to hear more, follow us on Instagram at tit underscore talks or email us at tittalks at gmail.com. We always love hearing from you and we hope that you'll join us again soon. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Justine and Chris.